You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Frank Dick. Frank is the current president of the European Athletics Coaches Association. From 1970 until 1979, he was the Scottish National Athletics Coach. Then in 1979, he was appointed as the British Athletics Federation's Director of Coaching. In this position, Frank led the British athletics team into its golden era, with Olympic gold medalists such as Daley Thompson, Steve Ovett and Sebastian Coe, and ultimately victory in the European Cup in 1989. His contribution to sport and coaching was recognised with the awarding of an OBE in 1989 and an induction to the UK Coaches Hall of Fame in 1999. He has also coached athletes from other sports such as the F1 driver Gerhard Berger, ice skater Katarina Witt, tennis player Boris Becker and golfer Justin Rose. Amongst the many other successes on his impressive resume are a Fulbright scholarship in 1965, the publication of four books, stints as chair of the British Association of National Coaches and British Institute of Sports Coaches, the appointment as a high-performance director for the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, and a strategic planning consultant for the England rugby leadership team under Eddie Jones. 
Frank is a master coach and a fabulous storyteller. And some of the key parts of this interview for me were his view that the great coaches have curiosity and try to look at the world differently to learn new things. His thoughts on learning faster than the competition and holding yourself to the same expectations about learning that you have for your athletes. And that teams are selected for their diversity and from that you must create harmony. And so your job as a coach is often as the conductor of the orchestra. This was a great conversation. I left feeling inspired and educated and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did too. The Great Coaches Podcast. Frank Dick, good evening and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Uh, good evening to you too, Paul. I'm really pleased to be here. I am really excited to talk to you a little bit about athletics, but of course, coaching more broadly because you've got a wonderful resume, um, which I'm sure we'll get into as well. Frank, if I could ask a really difficult question just to kick us off, where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? Well, actually, I just spent three days with uh, Eddie Jones, who I understand you've met before. Eddie's, I've got a huge amount of admiration for him, and thank goodness he's, he has got a fair bit of respect for myself. And we've spent two, three days really working hard on learning and teaching, looking to, which you might think, well, for goodness sake, to coaches at uh, this kind of level, surely they don't have to know about these things. But you do. You have to go back to basics pretty often and make sure you've got your basics absolutely right, especially if you're trying to influence people's lives. And so Vin Walsh and Doug Lamoff and, and speaking to them about teaching and learning and techniques to go with that. Fantastic. We're lucky. We're glad to have you straight from the classroom so we can pick up a couple mm-hmm. of those learnings as well as we go along. Frank, if I could start by name dropping because you've had experience of some, they are great coaches. They're, there's Jeff Gowan, there's Bill Bowerman, there's Eddie Jones, there's Sir Alex Ferguson, there's Lisa Alexander, and there's many, many others. So maybe just an easy question to begin with. What is it you think the great coaches do so differently that sets them apart? I had a good think about such questions really over years. And the fact is, I don't think they've all got a common thing about them. They're all quite different. You put a whole list forward of the kind of things you look for in a coach, organization, setting standards, and so on. And you could say, well, these are the critical things, aren't they, Frank? Yeah. But they're not all equally good at each. And for some of them, simply by maximizing one particular area, that sets them apart. That's why it's really important, what a huge privilege I've had in my life, uh, to work with some really, really great coaches. Because then you see what excellence is like in each of these bits, rather than just sort of stand back and say, well, these are the kind of things you should be good at. So, for example, with Eddie Jones, one of the things that I learned very early on from him strongly is just how good he is at questioning and challenging and almost intuitively looking for different ways of doing things, right? No matter how good something has been or how well it's going, he'll look for another way to do it. And I think that bit of curiosity, that bit of demand for seeing the world differently is really pretty important. Bill Barman, he was one of the first persons that I was aware of who could blend completely opposing principles in coaching. So, for example, there was a Lydiard's kind of marathon method of endurance, whilst at the other extreme, there was Mihaly Igloy from Hungary, his work on mixed method. And Bill fused these in his particular system when he was working in the University of Oregon. And then, of course, there's a guy called Anatoly Bondarchuk, I worked with a long time ago, and he gave me a very, very simple lesson 
not just to me specifically, but to other people. But I watched him delivering on this, and it was about how you should treat technical development. He'd come to a conference that we had in uh, Edinburgh for the European Athletics Coaches Association, and it was a very bad winter. The snow had come down, and Bondage, you well know, is a former world record holder, Olympic champion in Hammer, and he's coached a few of that, a few athletes that, to that level. There was going to be a demonstration, and he was going to coach some young guy called Chris Black, who, oddly enough, was a left-handed hammer thrower, which made it a little bit awkward for people. But anyway, the people who'd come to the conference mobbed themselves around the cage, right? Chris had cleared the circle itself. But there was Bondarchuk standing about 20 to 30 meters away. And I said, said to him through Ludmilla, his, his interpreter, I said, can you say, please say to Anatoly, I'll, I'll move these people so you can get closer. And she translated this to him. And he, then back through her, he said, no, there's no point in coming close. What you must always do is stand back and see the whole of a movement because then you will instantly see where there's a fracture in the rhythm because all techniques have a rhythm. And so once you see there's a fracture, it's very difficult to understand exactly where it is. So then you come in close and you start from the feet and you work up. What a fantastic lesson. And that, that changed exactly how I looked at any technique thereafter. Bearing in mind that my sort of dinosaur generation uh, didn't have access to video footage and technology like that. We had to be able to look at things observe, understand their meaning, and then work out how to coach from there. So, for example, a bit different than the actual question you've asked here, but you've started me on a roll now. I was working with Boris Becker. I was brought into that by a giant in the country that you're working right at this moment, Jan Tiriak. Uh, he asked me to come in and work with Boris, and he said two things, Frankie, work with his feet and work with his attitude. I said, okay, Boris, uh, thanks, thanks, Jan, and thanks for the privilege of, of being part of this. I then examined about 72 hours worth of, vid of film at that time of people like uh, Steffi Graf, Bjorn Borg, Mechirsch, who's like a cat round the court, the Spanish guys who were good on clay and so on. And then I worked out what I thought were some pretty clever exercises, modestly, but, but I thought they were pretty good. And I said to, I gave them to Boris, and he kept falling over his feet. Because remember at that point, Boris used to throw himself around the court, diving for balls. The bit was, this wasn't a technique. This was a compensation because he couldn't move his feet fast enough. And so I was getting a bit mad at him. I thought at one point he was just trying to be perverse. And then it dawned on me. I was making the biggest mistake you can ever make in life as a coach. Never look at what's in front of you and try to coach that. Because what you're seeing is a consequence. It's a consequence of something. What you have to be able to do is go at least one step before and try to find out what is it that's caused this consequence. This is the effect. Where is the cause? Then you coach there and you work back in again. Okay. So I think, again, coming back to technical training and so on, you learn so much through your experiences of starts and make mistakes. You make big mistakes, even in something as simple as technique. But just to finish off the Boris story, Jan very kindly took me out to dinner at a very lovely restaurant in London called, at that point, called Montpellianos, just opposite Harrods. And he said to me, Frankie, you've done a good job on Boris's feet. I said, well, thank you very much indeed. I'm, uh, no, no, really, you've done a good job. So tell me about the attitude. What about the attitudes? And I said, well, you know, Jan, I can't really answer that question myself, but all I can do is give you the advice of Mark Twain when he said, when I was 18 years of age, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. When I was 21, I couldn't believe how much the old guy had learned in three years. And I think sometimes you have to have the patience to wait for people to be ready for the changes. Frank, we're going to get into the long journey. We're going to trace it all the way through, through the gold medals and everything that goes with it. But maybe just a question to get some context. 
Was there a person or an event or, a, or someone that triggered this passion in you to coach? Really good question. Actually, yes. There were several people who enriched it as we went along, but I was 15 years of age and I really tormented my physical education teacher to death so that I could go to the Scottish schoolboys Easter course at Largs in Inverclyde in Scotland. And, and I managed to go, persuaded my mum and dad to help me get there and off I went. And I can vividly remember walking into the entry of, to the Inverclyde, which is the centre, and this guy was coming down the stairs giant of a guy. He was wearing a, a kind of a fawn-coloured tracksuit, and he was the national coach, Tony Chapman. And then through this course, even although I went in trying to be an 800 metres athlete and learning more about that, you had to, as a young athlete, you had to attend lectures on every one of the events to understand what they were, what the techniques were, and what kind of things you needed to know to be strong at that. And by the way, just as an aside, I believe that every coach in track and field should do exactly that. They should cover all disciplines before they move on to specialization because there's so much to be learned. Whatever specialization you end up with, there's so much to be learned from the bits and pieces that are around us in this complex sport that we have. But what did that give me? First of all, at the back of my mind, I was full of admiration because nobody had spoken to me like this in life. They real, this guy really understood track and field. I mean, I had great physical education staff, but they were pretty obsessed by rugby. It was a big rugby school. And of course, they helped motivate me to get on and do my track and field, but they didn't understand the track and field. This guy did. And I was developing a pretty deep passion for athletics at this point. But before I know it, whilst I was trying to be an athlete, I already wanted to be the coach. How strange is that? Even before I launched into the practical bit of, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to stand in front of, of young athletes and be able to help them be great. Because I saw him like God, like a kind of a God up there. That was it. And that gave me a huge passion. So that believe it or not, at the ages of 16 and 17, I was actually writing coaching programs and schedules for some of my mates at school. Because I really wanted to understand more. And maybe, well, that's something that all athletes and performers out there have to understand. If you're not a serious, dedicated student of your event, you're not going to go very far. You've got to actively engage with your own development as early as possible. And to do that, you must really understand almost as much as the coach does, because one day you will know more than the coach. Frank, there's such an impressive list of athletes that you've worked with over the years. I'm just going to reel off some of them. There's Daley Thompson, Steve Obet, a runner, Sebastian Coe, I think his name is, That's if I'm pronouncing it correctly. There's Gerhard Berger, the F1 driver, Katarina Witt, the ice skater. There's Boris Becker. There's Justin Rose, the golfer, and there's many, 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 many more. Different sports, different cultures, different ethnicities. So I wanted to ask you, what is this this experience taught you about the human spirit? Yeah, another great question. I'm pretty sure you're a great student of questions, Paul. I can only say that you're a world champion of this. I think one thing I believe very deeply, in fact, I got this picture to help elaborate on it. Kathy Freeman, before the Olympic Games in Sydney, she challenged the government to change the circumstance of the, the Aboriginal nation, and she won. She actually she affected huge change. She also, as I, I recall, had discovered the early stages of cancer in her husband at this point. And if this distracted her and she underperformed, where was the economics going to come from for his treatment? And she was also the young woman who lit the Olympic flame. I mean, 
Can you imagine what that must feel like, Paul? The greatest television audience in the world at that moment watching you in this wonderful piece, to me, of symbolism, where you cannot extinguish the flame of the human spirit. It goes on. You cannot extinguish it. And with this picture in my mind, I was gathering over these particular years, but maybe that flame is fueled differently for different people. And what the trick is, the real artist of coaching at that point in knowing your people, because this is fundamental, is to knowing how to fuel that spirit, because they're all different. They're all different, these athletes. What motivates them, where they've come from, their cultural background, that changes how they think. It changes what they believe in life. It changes attitude, and it actually changes their actions at the end of the day and how they make the decisions in life. And you've got to plug into that. You've got to really understand the individuality, because one size, as you well know in life, Paul, doesn't fit all. Frank, you talk about coaching being athlete-led, and in fact, you say you have got to have this feeling that this person in front of you has totally unique needs, and if you've not got a flexible mind that can find different ways of getting through to this person, you won't be able to feed on their strength and help make them grow. And my question is, how do you maintain this kind of empathy when there are so many people in the team? I just said in the last answer, you've got to know your people. I mean... Actually, whether you're in the world of business, whether you're in the world of sport or whatever, the first and foremost, if you're trying to pull a team together, is you better know them. Because when you try to fuse a team, when you try to blend and come together, you've actually got this, what appears to be a paradox. You've selected for diversity, and out of that, you've got to create harmony. And so actually, I began to sort of think of my job as a coach as pretty close to being the conductor of an orchestra. You know you've got to have different people in the team. There's a first violin here. There's somebody who plays a trombone across there. There's somebody who is probably such an outstanding player. They're a soloist, but there might be somebody fresh out of music academy across here. The odd thing is when you're trying to create this harmony and trying to balance one against the other so that nobody sort of roughs each other up, just because somebody's a powerful musician, you can't allow them to squash the rest of the orchestra. You're trying to get the right sense of harmony out of everyone, bearing in mind that they can't hear each other. When they're in the middle of it all, you might say, well, some of them do, Frank, but they can't really hear everything that's going on around. But the only people who hear, really hear the orchestra and hear the team is the conductor or the public out there who are watching what's happening. So you've got to have the sensitivity to know your people, where they're strong, where they're vulnerable. Understanding, of course, that very seldom in life, when you're building a team, do you build a team from scratch. You actually, most of us, inherit a team. Think of football managers, AFL managers, coaches, rugby union coaches. They're appointed as the new coach of the team, but this isn't their team. It's somebody else's. It's been influenced by another mind altogether. And you as the coach, having understood the vulnerabilities and the strengths, how they work with each other to compensate for each other and to enrich each other, bearing that in mind, you as the coach have to go with them in the first instance. You have to go with their flow because you still have to perform out there, even though they're not your people. Understand them well enough to adapt yourself to address them. Somewhere at the back of your mind, however, working with them, you know where you want to go and you know how you can make this team, the goals that you're after, and you know what will be necessary to achieve these great goals up there. It's at that point, gradually, unfortunately, you'll have to move some people on and keep some on. Bearing in mind that in any team, you will need a blend of experience and inventiveness. 
right? The new kids come in the block. You should never dismiss the youngsters because they're going to be the creative new thinkers and so on. More energy, willing to take greater risks. But the more established ones are trying to hold a sense of balance of what does and doesn't work out there to enrich, to, to somehow or other shape the youngsters from their experience without taking the edges off that experience. And the thing is, a coach, you've got to be able to think that way. And I'm quite sure you have to think that way, even with your own business people. We started off this discussion, Frank, by you saying you'd spent three days and you were doing some learning and some development with Eddie Jones and a couple of other uh, gentlemen, Vin Walsh. And actually, when I go back and I was preparing for today, what's quite consistent in your story is your belief that the ability to learn quickly is your only ongoing source of competitive advantage. So I wanted to ask if there was a story you could share of how you have applied this philosophy to one of your athletes, and as a result, they've improved. I think there's two aspects of coaching, I think, to be very generalistic. There's the technical bits and there's the people bit. Mostly, once the athlete is in place technically, the only real changes you're going to affect and how, try to get people to learn are, are behavioral things, people, the people's skills. And you, you've got to be pr- pretty hard at that with your athletes. The learning portion sometimes is, is kind of how you can adjust at speed y- yourself. So, for example, young boy Cameron Sharp, I worked with a long time ago at the European Championships. He'd, in the semi-final, he'd fin- 100 metres in Athens, he'd finished second to Pavoni from Italy. And as he came off the pitch, I was, really wasn't aware of it myself. Cameron suddenly looked at me and said, you're not saying much now, coach. And I suddenly realized I didn't know what to say because I'd never, at that point in my life, I'd never coached anyone to get into the final of a major championships. This was my first time. And I just I felt empty because I was looking ahead down the tunnel and Pavoni was with Carlo Vittori, who coached Pietro Menea. And... I knew he knew what to say. Upshot of that, in the final, Pavoni goes on to win. Cameron doesn't get a medal. A few days later, we've got the 200 meters coming up. I believe you can learn from your enemy. You have to have the humility to admit where you, you really need to know more. And so I went across to him to, I got a hold of Carlo. And over a nice bottle of Retsina, I didn't get that right. I said, Frankie, always look ahead, never look behind. He said, I bet you were thinking about how well he'd run in the semifinal. But what you should be looking at is what he's going to do in the final. Well, I must have got some p- bit of quick, quick learning there because in the 200 metres, he ended up with, with a silver medal, narrowly missing uh, missing the gold. But that was a big lesson to me, a, a willingness. You've got to want to learn faster and to learn better. It's not just that you want that in your players. You've actually got to be pretty hot at that yourself. And when it comes to the lessons that you have to learn, I think it's very important at the back of your mind to understand there are only three things you really have to know, Paul. One, you've got to know what you know. Two, you've got to know what you don't know. And three, you've got to know somebody who does and get them into the team because you can't know everything. You must never make an athlete the victim of your limitations. That's really, really important. And limitations we all have, we all have them. But put your hand up very quickly when you know you've reached the end of something. If you think about Meg Ritchie, another athlete I coached, the first discus thrower that I'd ever coached of any kind of note, and Meg went through to be the Scottish champion. But once she got to that level, I was really not competent. Okay, I'm a head coach at this point. I'm supposed to be like Tony Chapman was, the superstar. But I, I was not the person for Meg at that point. So she then worked with Helmer Hommel from Germany, then Carl Johnson 
And at that point, she went the rest of the way to become UK record holder and, and, and so on. So I think there's this awareness of learning faster than the opposition. You've got to know what it is you can learn. And also, you've got to know that point where you can't learn fast enough to look after that person who's in front of you. And at that point, you have to go to the, have the courage to pass on. So with Daley Thompson, I coached Daley's uh, track events and the high jump. Uh, David Ortley, who got the silver medal in, in the javelin in Los Angeles, I coached David, but not one single word about the javelin itself. I coached all the other bits of pieces, his training programs, scheduling, peaking on the day and that sort of stuff. That was my field of expertise. He actually got his technical advice from Nicholas Nemeth, former world record holder in, in, in javelin. So David gave daily advice on the javelin. We looked to Art Venegas, UCLA, one of the top guys in shot and discus. He looked after these two events. Paul Brooks was an accountant, but with a passion for pole vault. And he could take daily the rest of the way. Oh, by the way, a little side, sidebar to the strange people that you meet in coaching. Paul Brooks then began, as, as an accountant, he'd try other things in life, in addition to his pole vault coaching. And he started to write things, scripts, movie stuff. My Fat Greek's Wedding, he was behind that. And so now he lives in Malibu Beach, which is rather more expensive than the areas most of us live in. So, And finally, there was Greg Richards, another decathlete, who was Daly's training pal, Greg was very good on long jump. So there you have it, one coach admitting straight away, I can't understand that, that, that. And if I'm going to make this guy the greatest athlete in the world, these people have to come on board. My job at that point was conducting that orchestra. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, let's pick up this theme of conducting and let's pick up the theme of the baton which of course is what the conductor uses. From 1970 to 1979, you were the Scottish National Athletics Coach. And then from 1979 to 1994, you were the British Athletics Federation Director of Coaching. And what I find fascinating about that period when you were in charge of British athletics is that Great Britain relay teams win a medal in every world, European, Commonwealth and Olympic Games. Now, passing the baton looks so simple on the TV, and yet in reality, the baton is often dropped or mishandled. So my question is, in coaching and perhaps in life, what are the key steps to take to make sure you pass the baton correctly to other members in the team? Really good point, because you can relate this to succession in business, of course, succession and coaching, in addition to what's happening out there on the field. One thing we all should be be pretty sharp about is, is understanding that the weakest points in any great structure 
of where they're connected, right? Whether it's a bridge, you can have the best materials in the world for a bridge, for a house or whatever. You can have the best athletes in the world, but if they can't connect, you're in trouble. The key then is working out how you create the connections. And I'm not convinced I got it right every time. You'll understand I'm not in the field passing the bat. I'm not the guy who's running around there. They are. And the good bit was that the, the far more difficult, by the way, in four by one than four by four. In four by four, the bat and passing is not quite as critical. It's important, but not quite as critical because it's visual for, for most of these guys. But it's non-visual. In, in one of the things that I, I think I had to learn very early when you were pulling teams together for the relay, the words of Casey Stengel, getting the best players is the easy part. It's getting them to work together that's the hard part. And so in track and field, where is the problem with that? Well, folks, it's not a team sport. For the most part, track and field is not a team sport. It's an individual sport. And it's getting played when people who would normally be fighting each other to get into this or that team, you're now asking them with the mentality of a sprinter, which is very, very focused and tight. You're trying to get them to come together. Carl Lewis found it very hard to fit into the United States team. Linford Christie found it very hard to fit into to our team. At that point, is simply perseverance. It's not an easy thing to have people to change their attitude to each other just overnight. One day I'm not going to spot some of you, Paul, but tomorrow we've got to be best pals because we, we, we depend on each other. It's not an, easy, not an easy one. So in many ways, it was simply by trying to get them together minimally at that point, there were no budgets for relays all over that period, whereas now you might have a relay coach and you can bring them in from time to time. That didn't exist. But in these points, one, I did have very good players, very good athletes. But two, in the 400 meters particularly, that moved slightly from me controlling a situation, although I was the one who had to make the decisions at the end of the day, to actually listening to the athletes and moving with them. So, for example, in the four before in Tokyo for the World Championships, originally the idea was to run in, in a training camp. We agreed that Roger Black was going to go out first. Then it was going to be, my brain's gone now, Derek Redmond. Then it was going to be John Regis. Then it was going to be Chris Akabuzi and then John Regis. That was the first thing. But by the time we got to the, the event, there was... People were getting their own sort of motivations as to would or wouldn't work. And Chris Akabuzi, um, who was a big pals with Roger Black, said, Frankie, I can run last. Well, under normal circumstances, we probably have said, well, I'm not sure because you haven't run last before. But earlier in the season, he'd run a very good last leg for Great Britain up in Edinburgh. And so to me, at that point was, of course, I have to call the shot. But these boys are telling me how best this could work. And so you go with that. So the boys make the decision, basically have an idea. But at the end, the person who will be accountable if it falls flat in its nose is the coach. But at some point, you've got to take the risk of winning your life and go with it and trust trust your players because they want to win. That's the bit. And say the four by one, rather more difficult. But once people understand that it doesn't matter how good you are, Linford on the last leg, if you don't get the bat, mate, it's not going to work. Right? I don't care how good you are. And these athletes, John Regis, very powerful guy, not only 400 metres, but of course, initially the four by 100 metres, very proud boy. He didn't like the feeling at that point that perhaps Linford was putting a little bit too much weight. But in the interest of the team, the good bit was these giant egos accepted that they could come together and work together. And so that's it. Sticking with team for a second on this one, Paul, one of the biggest achievements I think in my life and in British athletics was winning the European Cup 
1989. At that point, the European Cup competition, I should explain, used to be the, the top eight nations in Europe, men, top eight nations in Europe. Not every nation had a, a team in both, but we did in this particular case. Or to, just to explain the nature of the competition, there are 20 disciplines, for example, in the men's event. You get eight points if you're first, one of your last, one represented from each country in each race. So there you are, 20 disciplines, eight points first. The maximum number of points you can get is 116, right? What I did was, just as you researched me before you came in, I used to research every team and what we would be worth against them. Because remember, at this point, it was always won by the Soviet Union or the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. Great Britain, at the very best, were a bad third. And so I went to it and I discovered that we were only 14 points on paper away from the big two. Now, we'd never been that close before. And so how do I get over to a bunch of people who never work together? They're not a team. They're individuals. How do I get over to them that they can make the difference individually between putting the flag at the top of the flagpole or leaving it on the floor? And so I tried this. Today and tomorrow, you've got a 14-point mountain to climb. It's 14 points because that's the difference between what you're worth on paper and what the opposition. It's a mountain because it can only happen today and tomorrow. You can't come back next week. This is it. But what that means is that if you're youngsters in the team for the first time and you're worth one point on paper and you can turn it to two, it actually makes the same difference as you guys who are more established, who are worth five points and you can turn it to six. And as for you, Linford Christie and Colin Jackson, all I expect from you is eight. So don't give me seven. I could see the eyes narrowing down and going out the door, looking to see what I'd written down for them. And then I could hear them muttering, yeah, what does he know about it? But as actually, that's exactly what I wanted to happen. I wanted people to understand that by getting to the top of their own mountain, that would make a difference between putting the flag up there or leaving it on the floor. And all I was asking them for was one more point each. That's all I needed. Well, at the end of the two days, the, the men had the trophy. The women, the highest number of points ever recorded by a West European female team at that point. And I went to the celebration afterwards. And when I went in, the room went silent. There was champagne all over the place. People hysterical. All went quiet. I said, OK, it's been drawn to my attention that we only won this trophy by eight and a half points. I'd like to know who's to blame. And they all put their hands up. And I said, that's the way it is, guys. That is just the way it is. You can climb your mountain. And when you do that, you'll change the world. And so that was my effort in trying to change a team of people who were totally individual, never really communicated much with each other, to get them to understand that together we can do this. Frank, I've heard you talk about the poem The Prophet by Carlisle Gibran in many of your interviews. Can you share with us why you believe it's so pertinent to coaching? Well, first of all, in general, let me preface this by saying every now and again there's a book or something in my life, and I'm sure in yours, that makes you think, I get it. I get, the, I get the meaning of this bit of life. And at that point, there were two books that I was reading. One was Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which I would advise every young athlete and every coach to read. It's about, it's about a, a seagull with ideas beyond his station. Right? When I was studying in the University of Oregon, somebody pointed out to me, you should read this book, The Prophet. I said, oh, I'm not a great reader. No, read The Prophet, because it will change what you, how you think about things. And so I did. It's the kind of book you read. It's a poem, a long poem. You can read it inside an hour easy. And it's about a, a prophet who's leaving a land and, and people realize, it's like having a, a webinar, they realize we better ask him all the questions now because we may, we may never see him again. And so they ask him about love, about joy, about sorrow and so on. But then they ask him about parents and children. And the answer he gives is the parent, I'm paraphrasing, the parent is to the bow 
as the child is to the arrow. And that was about parents and children. But I suddenly thought, because I keep on looking, Paul, for other ways to explain what coaching is, giving them the roots to grow, the wings to fly, all these things. Keep on looking for other things. And I thought, how beautiful is this? Because it's dead right. You've got to give that your job as the coach is to give you your young charges power and give them direction. But your job is to let them go. And that's a tough one for a lot of coaches. The very idea that in the yeah, the very idea that you've got to let them go. That's the bit. And so and, and why why I love the book is that it's poetic, but it gives you a different kind of vision. Gibran gives you a different kind of vision of what these things mean in life. And I say, okay, I come back to it. These two books, at that point in my life, they actually changed my life. They changed how I was going to think about things. And I think we should always be looking for books like that, for a movie like that, for, for a poem like that, something that suddenly makes you sit back and think, yeah, I thought I knew about this, but I don't. It comes back a little bit to, like to Eddie. Yeah, I know this is the way you do it, but is there another way? In everything in life, Paul, doesn't matter whether you win, lose, or draw. In everything in life, when you come away from it, there is always something you could do better or something you could do differently. And oddly enough, wrapped up in that is the notion of success and failure. In my world, there's a great, great quote by, uh, I think it's Kevin Waitley, an American authority in human performance, where he says, failure should be your teacher, not your undertaker. I thought that's a, what a great line that is. Because, you see, if, if you're going to change things in life, Paul, if you're going to push beyond the edge to go into new territory, to try to, do, to change the world, try to change what you do yourself, the chances of failure are pretty great because you've not been there before. It's, it's an uncomfortable ride, isn't it? But the key to that is fail fast and learn faster, right? If you're going to go for this, get out there, take the risk, get into these uncomfortable bits because they will be uncomfortable. And if you fall on your nose, get back on your feet fast learn even faster and move on because you will fail. So failure is not your enemy at the end of the day. It's something there that you can use. Oh, but by the same token, as Alex Ferguson uh, taught me very early on, you've got to be able to manage success and failure. Success? I mean, I thought success was success breeds success as an easy old thing. It says, no, you've got to remember that success can derail progress. If you're not careful, you begin to believe in your success. You begin to be complacent and you think that that's good enough. But it's not. The great story about that, right? Alex Ferguson is coaching. He's with Manchester United and it gets to the 1993 season and they win the Premiership in England in football. And he knew that no club had ever won back-to-back -back Premierships. He brought in Gary Palliser, the team captain. He said, listen, son, now this is pre-season training this coaching staff and I have been keeping an eye on training and so on. And we've determined that two of the players um, think that that was good enough. He says, what do you mean, boss? Well, they're satisfied with that. They're satisfied with think that's good enough. So who are they, boss? Well, it's not for me to say, son. You're the team captain. You better keep your eye on this. So you can imagine as the season goes on, week after week, Gary comes back and says, Chief, we don't get it. We can't see it. Keep your eye open, son, because they're there. You've got to be vigilant every moment out there. So it comes all the way through to the end of the season and they win back-to-back -back championships, right? Gary comes in now and says, you'll have to tell me now, boss, who were they? He says, there was nobody, son. You must stay vigilant when you had success. You can't get away with that too often, Paul. But I think that is actually a good message for your staff in life, for your colleagues, for your coaches as a head coach, for your athletes. How you handle these two situations is really important. And you have to have a sense of strategy for that.
Frank, if I could take you back to the tenements in Leith, to that young boy that was running up and down the street to raise some money so he could buy a pair of spikes, although his dad was going to buy one spike, I understand, and you were going to buy the other. If you could stand in front of that, that young boy now, what advice would you give him? Well, I'd say, listen, son, this is the way it is in life. It's hard. There are no shortcuts in life to success. You've got to be able to make the choices to take the hard way. The way I see life, Paul, is, is just a series of crossroads. And you've got a choice which way you go then. But never take the easy way. There's no shortcut in this business of trying to be successful in life. There's no shortcuts at all. And if you keep on trying to take shortcuts, as John Wooden said, if you keep on working on the tricks of the trade, you'll never understand the trade. And that's the way I, I actually see life itself. And that's what I'd like that young lad to understand. And to be honest, by accident or whatever, that probably happened to him quite a few times on his way through. Running up and down these stairs, oddly enough, had a benefit, Paul. I got fitter than any of the other kids in the year when it comes to power sprinting up hills and so on. When I got the pair of shoes and I was looking at them, I suddenly realized I don't think people are going to give me things. It was wrong for me to expect my dad to give me that. And that would be my message back to this kid. Listen, that's the way it's going to be. Do not go out there and expect things to happen for you. You've got to make them happen. You've got to own the journey yourself. Don't look for any free rides. There's no entitlement out there, for goodness sake. It's tough. And if you're going to learn how to be tough, climb the mountains other people would never dare to climb. You know what happens so often in life, boys? You have success. You get to the top of your mountain, and some people think to themselves, well, that's it. Just keep going. No. Change your mountain, because the opposition, the people you're fighting with, they're looking at you, and they think they've worked out how they can get to the top of mountains. So they try to imitate you. And believe it or not, unfortunately, very often the imitation is better than the original. What you've got to be looking for is another mountain and a tougher one. Why? Because every one of us, no matter our age in life, no matter how great you've been, no matter how tough things have been in the past, they are going to get tougher in the future. And the only way to learn how to climb the tougher mountains is to look for mountains other people wouldn't dare to climb. Keep changing them. You cannot leap from the top of one mountain to the next. You have to go back down again and start climbing and be comfortable with that. Put in the hard yards and the chances of getting to the top are going to be great. You know you're going to fall sometimes, but you learn how to pick yourself up. You know you're going to get hurt, but you learn, you learn how to heal yourself at that point and keep going. And one day, of course, you're stood at the top of the mountain. And when you're up there, you suddenly, it never feels the way you thought it was going to feel. It doesn't. You know, we don't know what we expect when we get up there and we've got a cup in our hand or we're a medal around the neck, but it doesn't feel the way you thought it was going to feel. And again, what are real mountain people doing in life when they get to that point? They say, call that a mountain, show me a real one. And then they go for the next one. And I think that's just the way it is, Paul. Look for the hard way. Right? Don't expect it. Don't have any sense of entitlement in life. Look for the next tough one and keep going. I'd like to ask one final question, if I could, Frank, and I'd like to transition from that, that young boy in Leaf all the way through to the person you are today. And before I ask the question, one last great quote from you, Frank, if I can. And you say, what you are doing is not only preparing them for the very obvious thing of trying to get to deliver a lifetime's best or a world record or an Olympic gold medal, but you're also trying to make them better than they were yesterday. And you're using this experience to draw out lessons that will help them in life. And so I wanted to close by asking you, what's the legacy you hope you've left as a coach? 
first of all, I'd like to think I've got a few more years to be working on what that legacy might be. You asked me earlier about learning faster than the opposition. And the truth in life is you learn faster together than you do apart. One of the things in coaching is that we're supposed to knock the spots out of each other. We're supposed to do that, that we're competing. And what we do is we attend courses and we, we, we listen to fantastic webinars and we pick up lessons to help us be better coaches. But what does that do for coaching itself? Because we belong to this bigger thing called coaching. And I think I like the notion. I mean, it's the title of a book, but the, the book doesn't mean it the same way I mean it. I like the idea of cooperation. We should compete with each other for so many months in the year. But for the rest of the time, we should be able to cooperate, to work together for the advancement of coaching. Let me tell you a story about that. Way back in time, just became a Scottish national coach. And there was a situation where we had two fantastic women's clubs, one in Edinburgh, Edinburgh Southern Harriers Ladies, one in Glasgow called Mary Hill. And the chief coaches there, George Sinclair in Edinburgh and Jimmy Campbell in, in, in Glasgow, their life ambition was how to beat each other in the Scottish Championships and to see which club would get the most medals and so on. And that was it. That was the definition of success and what winning would be. But at that point, for most of the athletes who were successful there, when they went to the equivalent of the British Championships, which was the, the, the women's three A's at that point, they would get squashed. At that point, I think there was maybe 7.5% of the British team, women's team, were Scottish. I had this conversation with them about cooperation. And so they did actually begin to swap notes with each other. And I promise you, within four years, they had the best part of 20% of the team, of the UK team. That led me to be a champion, for example, as you know, and I've got the privilege to be the president of the European Athletics Coaches Associations, the European Athletics Coaches Association. And the idea is for coaches to come together to learn from each other. And there's Nakatska for the North America, Caribbean, Central American coaches. There's, there's Asia. I'm working on to create, which might be interesting for you, in Oceania. I'm trying to re-establish the Oceania, that is Coaches Association, working on re-establishing Asia and also Africa, with a view that ultimately these area coaches associations and any national coaches associations will fuse into a world alliance of coaches to share each other's knowledge. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, when IWF, the International Association of, of Athletics Federations, when they moved towards world athletics, a very brave move by Seb and his staff, Helen Delaney principally as the head of governance, they shifted the governance structure. But at that point, there was no specific identity uh, for coaches. And so I had a good chat with Seb, and Seb and his people at the top, the leadership, they are 100% behind coaches and understand the line that I keep on throwing out is athletes make excellence happen, coaches make excellence possible. Right? I like to just keep throwing that at people. And Seb's a big champion for coaching. And he said, okay, what do you think we could should do about it? So what we'll go with Charles Van Comeny, the Dutch coach, head of Dutch track and field, put together a concept called the Global Athletics Coaching Academy. The idea being in terms of bricks and mortar, there would be kind of a global campus of institutes all working together to help raise coaching standards at the top end initially. So we have particular academy courses for, for coaching developers, for coach leaders, head coaches and so on, for top practitioners. And the essence of the academy is to look after education, uh, regulation and coaching, because that doesn't exist at the moment, support of coaching in their endeavor and representation of coaches. 
And so that concept, I'm hoping, at least getting the thing moving in life, I want that concept to be something that coaches will live for the future, coming all the way back to me learning from coaches coming through. I want the, the coaches in the world to understand that if you work together, you will raise coaching itself to a much higher level. And the benefit of that to the coaches and as a consequence to the young people, the, the influence will be immense. Frank Dick, that sounds like a pretty significant mountain you've got ahead of you to climb. And I wish you all the best as you set up towards the summit. It's been a privilege to spend an hour or so with you tonight. I thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, Paul, and uh, very best wishes to everyone who's been privileged to see the, the webinars that you've already put out there. And I hope that mine somehow or other will fit in with these other guys. Thank you, Frank. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here. And you have been listening to our discussion with Frank Dick. The key highlights for me were his description of the poem The Prophet by Carlisle Gibran and why this is something that all coaches should study, that failure should be your teacher, not your undertaker, and wanting to leave a legacy where coaches realise that through working together, they will raise the craft of coaching to a higher level that will benefit more young people around the world. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight and so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share then we would love to hear from you you can contact us using the details in the show notes Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.